with you again this morning. I would again like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our pastors to assigning me this topic of Christian assurance. There is a principle in life that the future gives meaning to the present. Goals, hopes, dreams, and fears are all future things that direct present living. The athlete finds motivation because of the future glory of winning. The young man finds courage to ask her hand in marriage at the thought of her sharing his last name. Future realities give meaning to present living. And God has also embedded this principle into redemption. The redemption we experience in the present is not the fullness promised in the future. Has it ever occurred to you why this is the case? Have you ever asked when your salvation will be fully realized? Or perhaps how salvation will arrive in its entirety? And these questions can be boiled down to one answer, the final judgment. The judgment day finds its basis in the holy character of God. It will be based on personal works and it will result in either salvation or damnation for every single human. You must understand this day and your place in it to gain full assurance of salvation. If you get judgment day wrong, you lose all. If you get judgment day right, you gain all. This is uh, the third sermon on this topic of Christian assurance that I've given this year. And in this series, my aim has been to convince and move you to experience what Thomas Brooks wrote of assurance. That assurance will bring down heaven into your bosoms. It will give you a possession of heaven on this side of heaven. And my aim this morning is to show you how Judgment Day fits into that assurance of salvation. So we'll approach our text this morning, this morning under four headings. First, I would have you notice the certainty of judgment. Notice what the apostle writes in these verses. He says that God will render, that God will give eternal life, that there will be wrath and fury, so on and so forth. Now, this is a verb that is in the future tense in the indicative mood. And what this means is that Judgment Day is not only future, but it's also certain. We typically divide Paul's letters up into indicatives and imperatives, with indicatives being objectively true statements. Well, such is the case here with Judgment Day. It is an indicative reality. It is certain. But there are other places in Scripture that attest to the certainty, and in particular outside of the New Testament. Consider with me briefly a few Old Testament examples. The New Testament makes clear that the judgments that fell upon peoples in the Old Testament are types that teach us what the final judgment is going to be like. Consider just one of these examples with me, the example of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Turn with me to Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Genesis 
Turn to chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21. Yahweh says, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. But Yahweh wasn't just seeking to judge the wicked. He was also seeking to save the righteous, i.e. Lot and his family. In chapter 19, the angels of Yahweh strike the homosexual rapist with blindness. And then in verse 13, this is what they say. We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before Yahweh. And Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. Yet Lot lingered. And so the angels forced them out of the city. And they charged them in verse 17. Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And as the story concludes at the end of chapter 19, Then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Yahweh utterly decimated the wicked, but He also saved the righteous. A second place in the Old Testament that we see the certainty of judgment is in the Old Covenant itself. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, you don't need to turn there. In the final song of Moses, listen to how Yahweh describes himself. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I, Yahweh himself, lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. But of his saints, this is what Yahweh says. Yahweh will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. King David picks up on the same theme in Psalm chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, the final judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In other words, Moses and David in the Old Testament are teaching that in the final judgment, Yahweh will see to it that the righteous make it through, but that the wicked do not. And then thirdly, in the Old Testament, we see the certainty of final judgment scattered throughout the minor prophets, which are commonly called the Twelve. There are twelve minor prophets. They regularly warn both the nation of Israel and the surrounding Gentile nations of a day that is coming, which they call the Day of Yahweh. And we might taste the sample of it from Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Would you turn there with me very briefly? Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. 
when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says Yahweh of hosts. There you see it again, the certainty of final judgment in which the wicked will be destroyed and the righteous will be saved. The final judgment is the foundational backdrop against which the entire New Testament message is to be understood. If we reject the certainty of judgment day, we reject our very salvation. I belabor this point because I want to ask you, does the doctrine of final judgment fit into your Christian vocabulary? Is it an integral part of your theology? Many in American culture have truly never heard of an idea of final judgment. If you bring it up, they will jest at its mention. There are many in evangelicalism who are confused about the final judgment. They don't understand it. And many have been swept away by heretical teachers concerning the final judgment. Oh, this is the day that it's coming, so on and so forth. For those of you who are married, one never forgets the excitement that comes with being engaged, and especially for the bride. There's the engagement party, there's the showers, there's the gifts, there's the planning, so on and so forth. And along the way, the, hus- the husband-to-be enjoys those things too. But why is everything about being engaged exciting? Why does it find meaning? Because of the wedding day. If there isn't going to be that day, then everything about the engagement is pointless. And such is the case with final judgment. That day animates the lives of the saints. That day truly gives meaning to life. There's a playwright named Samuel Beckett who wrote a somewhat disturbing play in 1969 that he called Breath. The play is only 35 seconds in length, and it opens with a pile of rubbish sitting on the stage. Trash, just a trash heap. And so the lights come on, and as the lights come on, one hears an indrawn breath. And for 35 seconds, the camera sits there on that pile of rubbish. At the close of the 35 seconds, as the lights dim, you hear an exhale of breath. The end. And one, one wonders if Samuel Beckett was perhaps making a philosophical statement about what he thought was the purpose of man. But he may have been on to something for those who forget the certainty of final judgment. If you reject or forget that day, you truly become like that play. Your life becomes meaningless. If you reject final judgment and you're a professing Christian, you throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, bath and your profession of Christ is fraudulent. But if you hold to the final judgment and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that day truly animates your faith. So final judgment is certain. But we must also see, secondly, the reason for final judgment. We know that the scriptures teach its certainty, 
But why is there a final judgment? Well, one reason for the final judgment is the fall of man. As good Christians, we know what happened in Genesis chapter 3. We know that Eve was deceived by the serpent. We know that Adam failed to intervene as a responsible head. And we know that man fell from their original state. So God immediately killed them, right? No. Why not? Mercy. God delayed final judgment to exercise mercy. God delayed final judgment because of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But while God has delayed final judgment, he has not gotten rid of it. The punishment of those who don't repent and flee to the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, makes final judgment necessary. There's a comedian in the early 20th century named W.C. Fields, an American comedian, uh, and he was reportedly not known for his religiosity. And in fact, as he lay in the hospital on his deathbed, a friend came to visit him, and he found an open Bible on Fields' lap. And his friend was shocked, and he said, why are you reading the Bible? And typical Fields, in his comedic fashion, replied, I'm looking for loopholes. Even unto death, men try to find loopholes to escape that day. Judgment has been delayed in mercy, but it is coming. A second reason for the final judgment is the suffering of the righteous. Our confession of faith states this in chapter 32 of the final judgment in paragraph 3. Listen to what they say. Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment. And they go on through the reasons. And one of those reasons is for the greater consolation of the godly and their adversity. In other words, the framers of the confession are asserting that on judgment day, God will visit wrath on those who have persecuted his people. Turn to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 5 through 7. As in all things in the confession of faith, they have recourse to the Scriptures. And this is one of the Scriptures that is cited. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. The Apostle Paul writes, This is evidence of the righteous, there's the word, judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when? When will God give relief to his persecuted people? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In other words, in the final judgment. And I think that perhaps this aspect of the Christian life has been lost by and large on Christians in America. We think to ourselves, God repays those who persecute his people with wrath. 
Yes, that is the testimony of the scripture. And perhaps we have misunderstood this because we, by and large, are not persecuted. But what of our brothers who are in Ukraine? What of our brothers who are in Cuba? What of Pastor Hot Neil who is driven into exile by the Cuban government? What truth do those brothers need in their adversity? The truth of final judgment. This is an edgy truth. There is no doubt about it. But it is the only truth that will give Christ's persecuted people strength to persevere. A third and perhaps most foundational reason for final judgment is God's vindication of himself. And this truly is at the heart of final judgment. God will be glorified in that day. Every word of God will be proved true at the judgment day. He will extend salvation to his people that he's promised to give them. He will extend wrath to those who have rejected his mercy. And God will be vindicated in the sight of all nations at the final judgment. So judgment is certain. The reason for it is the glory of God. But thirdly, you must see the basis of judgment. In other words, by what standard are all men going to be judged? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us that the standard will be God's character. Look what he writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 7. He says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. Verse 8, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Verse 9, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Verse 10, But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. How do we know what is good? Who is the foundational sum of all truth? By what standard do we judge unrighteousness and righteousness? God and his character. This is what we call in theology the communicable attributes. That is the moral character of God that can be reflected by his human creatures at the creaturely level. Right, Communicable attributes, attributes that can be communicated or shared by God's creatures. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. Humans have a capacity and a responsibility to reflect God's moral character at their own level. And the basis for the final judgment will be those humans' conformity to that very character. But we must also ask another question. Why is God's character the basis for final judgment? The reason I ask this question is because many unbelievers ask that, and we need to be able to give a sound answer. Just ask Oprah, who said that the God of the Bible cannot be the true God because he is jealous. Just ask Brad Pitt, who said that God is egotistical because he seeks his own glory. Go to the famous folks in the public square. Go to the unbeliever on the street. They will ask those types of questions. So why is God's character the basis for judgment? Because God is God. That's why. 
He alone is God, and there is no other, as Deuteronomy 32 says. He alone is self-existent. He alone is holy. He alone is just. That is why God is God. Who are you to question God? He occupies preeminence in all things, including judgment. Understand this truth, then you will stumble over Christianity. Uh, Author Paul Bowler writes of a very peculiar incident in the life of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, He had been apparently hard at work one day, and he went to a hotel in Baltimore to try to find lodging for the night. And so he walks into the lobby. He's in his work clothes. He's he's covered in dirt and muck. Kind of looks him over. Who's this dirty guy in, in my hotel? And he didn't recognize it was Thomas Jefferson. So Thomas Jefferson asked him, can I get lodging for the night? And the manager says, no. So Thomas Jefferson asked him again, can I, can I please get lodging for tonight? I, I need to stay here. And the manager looks him over and says, no, you can't. I'm, I'm not going to let a, a guy that looks like this stay in my hotel. I guess he had a pride issue. So Jefferson leaves, and he goes to find a, a nicer hotel with a nicer manager. Well, a friend of the owner runs in after this, and he says, you have just rejected lodging to Thomas Jefferson, the vice president of the United States. And doubtless the owner was shocked when he, when he learned that. Many people are likewise unimpressed and unaffected by God and His standard of judgment. But that doesn't change who He is or how He will judge. Author Dale Ralph Davis is worth quoting at length here. All of this tells us that God is not a mere three-letter word. The God of the Bible is not a formless blob of celestial protoplasm, not some sort of cosmic jello with a sickly smile. He has a nature, a character, positive and negative. He is not the grand relativist, but the living extremist. Let the flaming passion of these words slither down the throat of your soul and see how different this virile biblical God is from the sentimental deity men Imagine. So the basis of judgment is the character of God. And God will assess every individual human on the basis of his character. Paul makes it clear in these verses that the final judgment is individual. Verse 6, Paul says he will render to each one. Verse 9, for every human being. It is not corporate in the sense that you alone will have to stand before God. No family member, no spouse, no child, no Christian brother or sister, no pastor, nobody else will be able to stand before God in your place. God is going to judge all men. He's going to judge both men and women, boys and girls, young and old, healthy and unhealthy, impaired and unimpaired, rulers and subjects, rich and poor. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. So, how will everyone be assessed by God? God will assess each person based on their response to revelation received. So let me say that again. If you don't get anything outside of the sermon, I want you to get that. 
God will judge each person based on their response to revelation that they have received. But wait a minute, you might be thinking, I thought you just said we're going to be based on God's judged based on God's character. What what does revelation have to do with it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Allow me to answer with another question. What is revelation? It is a revealing. A revealing of who? A revealing of God and His character. So then, God will judge everyone based on how they responded to the revelation He gave of Himself and of His character. Paul makes clear in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and throughout the end of chapter 2, that many will be judged based on natural revelation. The Scripture is clear that God has revealed His nature, His power, and His eternality through the works of creation and providence, and that He has written His law on the hearts of men because we are made in the image of God. And on that day, those who have only received natural revelation will be judged based on how they responded to it. But the Scripture is clear that on the basis of natural revelation alone, man cannot be saved. The Scripture is clear that on that day, those who have only received natural revelation, every single one of them will have fallen short. Paul unequivocally states that. Our confession says, as we read this morning, chapter 1, paragraph 1, that it is not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation. And of such souls, Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, on that day... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But natural revelation isn't the only kind of revelation. Those who have received special revelation will be judged based on their response to it. Special revelation is redemptive revelation. God revealing His plan to save sinners through His Son. This is part of what Paul means in verses 9 and 10 when he says, the Jew first and also the Greek. He includes the Jew first because up to that point, they had been the main recipients of special revelation. But the judgment is not limited to the Jew because we are 2,000 years removed and we have the entire written word of God. And so all people who have received a knowledge of special revelation will be judged based on their response to it. The greater the revelation, the greater the responsibility, and the greater the judgment. Now, this topic of being judged based on response to special revelation deserves six months of sermons in its own right. Uh, It truly is a profound theme and topic in the Scriptures. But for the sake of simplicity this morning, I'm going to boil it down to this. On that day, the following question will be asked of every single person in this room. Did you respond to special revelation with faith and repentance? God will ask of you, did you respond to special revelation with faith and repentance? All special revelation centers on Jesus Christ. If you respond appropriately to special revelation, you therefore embrace Christ with the arms of faith. If you respond to special revelation with unbelief, you therefore reject Christ with the arm of unbelief. 
Did you respond to special revelation with faith and repentance? I remember a year or two ago, a fiasco I had while working in my previous job at a Lowe's. I had received word that a Lowe's company executive was coming to walk the store with his posse. And so the store had to be ready. And so I, I usually got to work earlier than most, and that day I had to get there even earlier. And so I walk into the store, and it's an absolute frenzy. More employees are there than normal, running all over the place. Managers are barking out orders. Pallets are littered all over the floor. It's like 6 o'clock in the morning. There was an urgency there. Why? The executive was coming, and the store had to be ready. The standard for Judgment Day ought to cause us to have the same urgency. It is coming. Are you ready? God will judge each one of us based on our conformity to His moral purity. Do you measure up? God will determine if you responded to His special revelation. Have you? And here is why you must respond to that special revelation. Because in God's special revelation, He has provided for you a remedy on that day. And that remedy is the Lord Jesus Christ offered to you with all of His benefits. If you respond to Jesus Christ with faith and repentance, you will be saved on that day. You will be accepted of God on that day. In Jesus Christ, you receive justification, being counted righteous before God the Father through faith alone. In Jesus Christ, you, are, you receive sanctification, conformity to His character. Through union with Jesus Christ, you receive glorification, which means acceptance with God on that day, and a resurrected body to reign with Christ forever and ever. Justification by faith alone truly is the hinge on which all true religion turns. Now listen to this. Justification is a judgment day reality that is brought forward into the present day. I'm going to say that again. Justification by faith alone is a judgment day reality brought forward into the present day. So God, on the basis of Christ's righteousness declares you just today. So your judgment day status is certain. Now the logic for a Christian's assurance works from the greater to the lesser. So if you will be considered righteous on that day, then you certainly are considered righteous before God this day. See that? But on Judgment Day for the believer, our works also play a part. Again, listen carefully. We do not gain eternal life based on our works. You will never be justified by your own personal works. You must be justified by personal works, Jesus' Jesus's personal works. But your works will be judged to determine the reality of your salvation. Because God doesn't only justify a person, He also sanctifies a person. And so what effect should that have for a believer on Judgment Day? Well, the same one it had for the Apostle Paul. 
There's at least twice in the book of Acts when he's standing before the rulers of his day, when he's being examined. And he he says the same phrase twice, and I, I think it was something that was a reality for the apostle, that he takes pains to have a clear conscience before both God and men. He takes pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Why? Because there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, and there will be a judgment day. But, lest the tender-conscienced believer waver, in that aspect of judgment, you also have a promise from God that he who has begun a good work in your soul will complete it on the day of Christ. Those are littered all across the New Testament epistles. That the God who has regenerated you, who has justified you, will also sanctify you. So that when you stand before him on judgment day, you are not only counted righteous based on Christ's righteousness, but also he has completed the good work of sanctification that he begun in you. That is a promise from God. I'm new to this whole married thing, but married couples often enjoy observing similarities between their spouse and their spouse's family. Right, So the hubby will be acting a certain way and the wife will say, that's just like your dad. Or uh, the wife will be acting a certain way and the hubby will say, that's, that's, uh, that's just like your mom. And those things are funny and we, we get a laugh out of it, but it shows something important. Conformity to our parents shows that we belong to them. And it's the same in salvation. Conformity to Christ shows that we belong to him. And so to the believer who bears fruit, although it is imperfect fruit, you have biblical warrant for confidence on that day. To the professing believer who has never borne any fruit and continues to bear no fruit, you have no biblical warrant for confidence on that day. Of such, Jesus will declare, I never knew you. Author Ian Murray writes of the great Scottish preacher, Mr. Bruce. He was around 75 years old, and his wife had been dead for several years, and he often wondered aloud to his friends. He he would ask, why has God let me continue to live for so long? And so one morning he was eating breakfast with his daughter, and all of a sudden he exclaimed, and he said, Hold, daughter, hold. My master calls me. All of a sudden, his eyes were blinded, and he asked his daughter to bring him the family Bible. And he said, put my finger on Romans chapter 8. He was blinded, he couldn't read. And in his moment of death, he recited from memory the second half of Romans chapter 8. And his final words were this, God be with you, my children. I have breakfasted with you. And shall sup with my Lord Jesus this night. I die believing these words. So too, believer, you who are plodding along, following Jesus, can have that same confidence in your own death and in judgment. So we've seen that judgment day is certain. We've seen the reasons For judgment, foundationally being the glory of God. We've seen the basis for judgment, 
the character of God is revealed in nature and special revelation. And then lastly, you must see the outcome of the final judgment. There will only be two outcomes on judgment day. God inflicting wrath and God giving grace. Paul, and likewise we, should without equivocation proclaim that God's wrath will be an outcome of Judgment Day. Look at verses 8 and 9. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. God's wrath is His unrelenting hatred against and subsequent punishment of sinners. This has commonly been called retributive justice. That is, God pays back the sinner what is due to him or her. And on Judgment Day, this justice will be dealt out against the sinner in proportion to the sins committed in their life. Sinners deviate from God's moral purity. If God doesn't punish sinners, He ceases to be God. God is the most worthy being. He is worthy of worship and adoration and obedience and imitation. And so if He doesn't doesn't punish deviation from that, He is in essence declaring, I am not worthy of your worship or your obedience. Likewise, in our day, if a judge sweeps crime underneath the rug, we would say he's unjust. So what did Abraham say? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's popular among American Christianity to say that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. There is a sense in which that is true. And we won't get into all the different nuances of that. But here's here's one of the problems with that statement. Sin is never committed in the abstract. It is always connected to a person. And such persons will be thrown into hell on that day for eternity. And people often ask, why is the punishment for sin so severe? And I could reply the way R.C. Sproul replied, what's the matter with you for asking that? But the reason is because sinners have spit in the face of an eternal God. And if they are allowed to live on earth for eternity, they would continue for eternity in their sin. That's why hell is eternal. Hell is described in Scripture in the following ways. An unquenchable fire, a furnace of fire, a lake of fire with an abundance of torments as the plentiful waters of a lake. An eternal fire, outer darkness where we are deprived of the light of God's countenance. The blackness of darkness forever as a place of terror that ought to cause men to tremble now. And chains of darkness referring to its binding nature and the impossibility of escape. There are negative losses. There's a negative aspect to hell in the sense that sinners lose something. But there's also a positive aspect in that God inflicts something. So here's the negative, the losses associated with hell. The loss of God's favorable presence. The loss of the presence of saints and angels. The loss of the blessedness of heaven. 
the loss of the mercy of God in Christ and the loss of all hope of recovery. Positively, God's wrath inflicts the following. The universality of torments on sinners in both body and soul. An extremity of torments that can neither be quenched or tolerated. The continuance of torments having no interruption. The society of torments in the sense that the wicked suffer with the wicked. So they find no no comfort from each other. The quality of the torments as a misery devoid of all comfort and pleasure. And the horror of conscience overcoming the damned soul because it lies under the wrath of a revengeful and incensed God to all eternity. I trembled often as I went through that section of the sermon. Uh, Puritan Christopher Love writes the following, Oh, this shall greatly torment the damned, even the thought of this, that they had many an opportunity of grace here in this world, yet have neglected them all. So I asked my listeners what John Bunyan once asked. Will you leave your sins and go to heaven? Or will you have your sins and go to hell? Special revelation has been presented to all in this room. Jesus Christ and the way of salvation has been preached. If we leave here today and we reject Christ, we have no excuse before God. But Paul also teaches that God's grace is one of the outcomes of the judgment. Romans chapter 8 verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As Paul writes in the verses here before us, the believer will receive glory, honor, peace, immortality, and eternal life. Revelation chapter 22 verses 3 through 5 give a glorious vision of the saints' inheritance on that day. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. One cannot help but think of the speech of Mr. Standfast at the end of Pilgrim's Progress. I see myself now at the end of my journey. My toilsome days are ended. I am going now to see that head that was crowned with thorns and that face that was spit upon for me. May our meditation in the hour of our own death and judgment be that of Puritan Samuel Rutherford. He said, I shall shine. I shall see him, Christ, as he is. I shall see him reign. Mine eyes shall see my Redeemer. These very eyes of mine and no other for me. Judgment day is certain. The reason for it is the glory of God. The basis of it is the character of God. And there are only two outcomes, the wrath of God and the grace of God. Flee to Christ, that you may receive the grace of God on that day. 
I conclude the sermon and the entire series on assurance with these words of the Apostle Paul. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall we not also with how shall he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, as Pastor Tyler was reading Hebrews 12, I couldn't help but think of the episode in Exodus 3 of Moses and the burning bush. Your glory drawed him near to yourself. He said, I shall turn aside and see this sight. But when he had gotten close enough, you said, stop and take your sandals off your feet. For the place in which you are standing is holy ground. Father, in our hearing, you have presented Christ before us. I pray that all of us would respond with faith and repentance and flee to him. Father, we do thank you that you are a just God. And for those who are in Christ, this justice works to their eternal good. Bless us now, we do pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would take the hymns of grace and turn to number 127, we're going to sing, Look ye saints, the side is glorious.